This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Louise Candlish, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. And Louise is in France, which we which we all admire, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> such a beautiful country, isn't it? It really is. It's kind of um, riot-torn at the moment because yeah. everyone's out on the streets protesting. But where of I course. am is, yeah. yeah, where I am is a kind of almost like a little Truman Show-style island. Mm. So there's no sense of that. There's no sense of unrest here, mm. which is which is good. But I've been following it on the news. I was there last year. I was in the south of France last year. And do you know what I thought? <laughs> I think I even wrote a little um, Instagram post on this. How French the French are. <laughs> Do you think? They are, yeah, they are. Yeah. They, um, they have no problems. They have no identity issues as no. many other cultures seem to, um, certainly in the Anglosphere. I think, and maybe the language is a part of that. But yeah, they're very. Um, they're, they're very French. Yeah, they're very French. And, right. um, you know, they're resistant to um, being anything And they're else. fiercely French as well, which yeah. I quite love. Okay, <laughs> Louise is the internationally best-selling author of 15 novels, including The Other Passenger, The Heights and Our House, which won the Crime and Thriller Book of the Year at the 2019 British Book Awards and is now a major four-part TV drama. And we're talking to Louise about her latest novel, The Only Suspect, is perfectly executed thriller and an unpredictable ride that will enthrall both fans and new readers alike. Do you know, 15 novels is a really big body of work, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and actually, um, this is my 16th, so it's kind of 15 previous novels. So wow. yeah, 16 novels and a novella. Yeah, I mean, when I think back to when I started writing fiction, I um I would never have imagined that I would reach this stage because I would not have imagined that I would have this number of ideas. So yeah. that has been the, the the nicest revelation for me as a human being is to is to discover that I am just constantly having ideas and constantly thinking of interpreting the world through a, a new story. Yeah. Um, and so so yeah, I mean it sounds crazy um when you say that number of, of books. And you know, and you obviously we all know authors who've written 20, 30, 40, 50 books, and then you get to, you know, Agatha Christie and and um and that kind of author where, you know, there are hundreds of, of works and it's just incredible. The human, mm. the human mind and the human creativity is really a thing. Yeah. And then I talk to some authors that write a book every five years or have only written two or three books. Not only because, you know, yeah, it can't and be they're easy. Often amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, funny, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's um it's a personality thing. I'm the kind of person who gets bored quite quickly. 
I love ideas, but I'm not so keen on executing them. And I found that when I have been given extra time, because it is generally a contractual thing, you know, someone like me is writing a book a year or a book every 18 months because that's I'm legally obliged to. I've signed a contract and, you know, I'm going to fulfill it. Otherwise, you know, um, if if you have an open ended situation, I think you could go on for 10 years. Yeah. Um, but I do. But I, I'm the kind of person who gets bored. So after about a year of working on anything, I want to move on. So it kind of suits me. Mm-hmm. I spoke to Lee Child um, a little while ago now, and he told me that every time, because he's up probably up to book 20, I'm not sure, but it was a lot of books. Oh, many more, I think, yeah. Many more. Yeah. But he many did say to me, and I wonder if this applies to you, he said that each time he sits down to start a new book, it's as hard as the first book. Um, yeah, I mean, it is in a way. It's certainly not. If if you're giving it your heart and soul, then you it's not a formula. It's not something that you kind of are doing by numbers and you know which ingredients you you need to do and and you could kind of almost do it on autopilot. I, I don't think many authors operate in that way. I think it really does feel like reinventing the wheel. And um, I'm the kind of author I've I've discovered um, who I don't I like to do something different each time and I really feel very strongly that I want to offer something new and original. Um, you know, in a way to read because it, you don't want to be bored feel. yourself, do you? No, I yeah. don't want to be bored myself, and but also I I don't want to be accused of doing the same thing, and I, I just don't want to disappoint readers. So yes, it does feel like it's your first novel every time, but I think that's really good because that suggests a really refreshing soul to your work that you know yeah. you are um, you know you're really giving it all. And so I know exactly what he means. And there's also the fear as well, of course. You know, it's not just, um, you know, pride in your ideas and originality. It is also just that fear that, you know, you might never be able to bring it the way you did with, you know, everyone's favourite book. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think when you have a big hit as well, that makes it even more difficult because everyone's comparing your next book to the one that went before or, the you know, their favourite five books ago or whatever. Do you know, um, I feel as though it's a career in a way that, you know, is no win because you can't celebrate yeah. the wins. <laughs> that <laughs> Because like like here you've got such a body of work, you've got a TV show, well, you know, one of your books has been made into a TV show, but you can never rest on your laurels because what it is that's coming up is the new thing and it's the fear yet again yeah. of how uh, yeah. how people respond to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, that's that's exactly it. You can't rest on your laurels. People will say to me, oh, it must be fine now you're established. But, you know, I don't What is that? And I don't know that anyone actually does, really. I mean, maybe mm. when you're right at the end of your career and you've won multiple awards and you're a, a billionaire, you know, I'm sure J.K. Rowling feels established. You know, I think that those mm. kind of megastars feel established. But I think for most of us, you don't. You feel like you're only as good as your last sales figures. You feel like, you know, your next book is going to be your best one and it's going to be the best idea and the one that's going to change the world. But I think that's part of the process. I really do. I think if you did start to think, oh, yeah, I'm fine, 
Yeah, this is fantastic. With my yeah. name on it. I mean, that's yeah. dangerous territory, isn't it? Oh, terribly. <laughs> and yes, of course, of course, they, they love me so much. Okay, I want yeah. to go back to where where the writing started. Let's go right back and tell me how you came to writing fiction. Well, I was one of those kids who wrote little novels. Um, and, you know, obviously this was back in the, the 70s and 80s. We didn't have the internet. Um, and we had like, you know, three TV channels. I don't think I had a TV in my room. Mm. Um, I also was quite a naughty child and I got into trouble. We won't go into the details of it, but um, it was bad enough that my parents grounded me one summer. I was about 11 or 12 then, I think. Oh, wow. And Early. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So it was about six six weeks of not being allowed out except to go to the library. So, you know, they were... They did a good thing there because all I did was read and write that summer. Um, and I wrote my first novel called Chopping and Changing. But then, you know, obviously I grew up. I started working and paying rent and partying in the 90s. And what were you working at? Were you working in a writing role? Yeah, I was generally in editorial roles. So I started up working as an assistant on a um, travel magazine. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And then I moved to illustrated art books. So nonfiction, so a completely different world. Um, and then I worked as a copywriter for an ad agency. So I was always dealing in words, mm. but, you know, kind of 20 words or mm. 60 words. Or, not 90,000 you know, words. words. But yeah, not, <laughs> not a novel. Um, yeah. And um, and then when I was, and, and I'd completely, you know, sort of forgotten about fiction then, you know, that was yeah. very much my kind of teenage delinquent um, hobby. But then I took a, I was a bit burnt out in my early 30s and I took a career break and I went backpacking in Sicily. Um, for just two wow. months, it wasn't a big deal. And my boyfriend came with me for the first two weeks and then um, I waved him off and I was on my own and I was pretty much on my own sort of traveling for the first time in decades. And by the second day, I'd bought a notebook and a pen because I was bored and just had this idea inspired by where I was. I have to say that setting has always been a, a big thing as it is for for many authors. And I just started writing a novel and it was about a woman who was stalking her ex-boyfriend on holiday with his new girlfriend. And it was just so much fun. It was not in any way an attempt to create a new career. I didn't really think about, you know, it being anything other than something I was writing, you know, old school in a notebook with a pen. But, you know, it kind of took over the trip. And by the time I went back, I thought, I'm going to type this up. This all sounds really kind mm -hmm. of um, like mm -hmm. I I'm, I'm grew up in the 1950s, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to type this up and I'm going to, you know, send it off to agents. So I did that and um, I got an agent and the book was published. So it was it all seemed very easy, like you could go on holiday and write a book and then suddenly you're an author. But as I've learned 16 books later, that was, you know, that really was just the beginning. And I so think, um, did you find that it was challenging to write long form after you'd been writing 20 words and 30 words and now you're writing, I don't know, what's a novel, 60, 70,000 words? Yeah, I mean, this was quite, this was the shortest of my novels. This was quite slight and, you know, it felt like a first novel. Um, but no, I didn't find, I found it just enjoyable. And I think it's because I had had that conditioning as a young person of, 
of reading so much and, um, you know, and also having tried to write before. I mean, if I could write 50,000 words as a 12 year old, then I could, you know, I could probably yeah. do it as a 32 year old. Um, but I just, I think as with, you know, with all good writing and good reading, I just got completely sort of bewitched by the story. I just got, you know, absorbed mm. into it as if that was, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be thinking about the fictional world and, um, it just happened very naturally and organically. And, you know, I always say to, to new writers, if I, if I ask to speak to them or advise, I always say really enjoy writing that first novel before you, you know, if you're mm. going to be published, before you mm. know if you're going to get an agent, just really enjoy it because it's such a pure relationship, you and the story. And you'll never, you'll never have that again because, you know, as soon as you are a career author, there are so many other factors, you know, there is, as we were saying earlier, the legal obligation, you know, there's the, the commercial element, there's the, you know, being racked with, with fear and anxiety about sales figures, there's decisions to make about your career. But right at the beginning, when you've just had an idea, and it's just you and no one knows about it, it's a really wonderful interlude in your life, I think. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Did you, um, because it's crime, isn't it? So did you think when you were writing that first book that this was going to be my path, that it's crime fiction that I'm interested in? Well, no, because that book wasn't um, wasn't crime fiction. My darker stories didn't happen till about book 10. So before that, they were considered dramas or, in fact, that first book was was considered a rom-com, even though it wasn't very romantic. It was, you know, as I as Somebody I said, stalking, stalking somebody story, else. But it <laughs> yeah. was a comedy. So there right. were, so, um, so early on, I wasn't crime fiction. It was only when I wrote The um, Disappearance of Emily Marr and The Sudden Departure of the Frasers, and I started to get categorised as domestic noir, which, you know, was an interesting sort of transition because um, there's no doubt about it that I was taken more seriously then, even though the writing quality and the 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 books were, you know, exactly the same quality. And, you know, there's an ongoing argument about how disrespected women's fiction can be. And I think, there's, oh, you know, there's certainly a revolution absolutely. happening here in the UK over that. And, you know, it's it's been outrageous. And, I, and you know, I'm in a position to to be able to compare how I was, how my books were treated when, mm. when they were on two different shelves and yet they were ultimately the same sort of book mm. anyway. So, um, but that very first book was, um, was just my voice, which is generally quite lighthearted and, uh, but also sardonic and, um, you know, it's, it's comedic, but also, 
you know, there's a melancholy. And actually, so that just reflected my personality. And then as I grew more confident and more experienced, I started to introduce elements to the voice that, you know, weren't necessarily my own. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't I'd never made a conscious decision to become a crime and thriller author. That was a category that was sort of decided for me by publishers. I've always just written the book that I wanted to, to write at that time and explore the ideas that I had in my head at that time. Um, so I think, um, and like authors, like say, um, Lisa Jewell is another one where, um, you know, star, she started out very much at the sort of, you know, one of the stars of Chiplet as it was called then. And now, you know, an incredibly dark, quite sinister, um, storyteller. Well, stories are sinister. She's not sinister. Mm. Um, but I think it's a similar kind of journey and, um, but it's, but neither of us, I think, would say that um, it was a conscious switch. It's a more kind of gradual darkening of the stories. And then um, and I would say Our House, which was the one that um, you mentioned, won the, won the Nibby, the British Book Award. That was probably the first time I actually conceived a story around a crime. Um, until then, the criminal elements had been sort of, you know, they'd, they'd instigated the emotional or psychological element of the story, but but I hadn't really been quite so interested in the mechanics of how you how you committed a crime. So our house was probably the one where you can say that was a real change. I've always wondered, and I've talked to many many crime authors, but you know, I mean, that's they're dark places to be as a writer. <laughs> how do you kind of move in and out of that? I, it's just it's just completely natural. I think that um, it's a rare person who doesn't have dark thoughts sometimes. I mean, you do get the occasional Pollyanna and, you know, I would love to live my life that way. But I'm definitely someone who's always been in touch with um, with, you know, both the light and dark sides of my personality. So I just find it really easy to kind of dive under and then kind of reemerge and go for dinner and have a laugh. Do you do research? Do you speak to people that have been involved in crimes? Tell me how how the story comes to you. My research will be um, will ma- will mainly be online or in terms of the setting. You know, going and absorbing all the details of a setting. But I don't talk to criminals directly. I have had advice from police officers. Um, when I want to get some procedural stuff authentic. But even that is very, very light because I write all stories from the point of view of someone who is either the victim of a crime or involved in a crime in a kind of hapless, incidental way where things have spiralled out of control. So um, I'm never thinking with a... The the narrator never really has a sort of criminal mind in that respect, Mm. and I've never done a... I've never um, followed an investigation in a story. I've never done a procedural police story. So I'm always writing from the point of view of a regular person who has inadvertently got involved in crime so in a way it's better for me not to know it's better for me not to know the technical language it's better for me not to know not to think about what's happening the way Mm. a 
uh, an investigator would or a detective, it's better to, for me to always keep in mind how I would, as a you know an innocent crime-free person, I hope, would respond to that situation. So it's not necessarily that useful or necessary for me to go and talk to um, convicted criminals. But I do read an enormous amount of crime reports, and quite often it will be a feature about a crime that has inspired and is the, that the way, idea in the first uh, place. Yeah, so you get your ideas from reading crime reports, yeah. So talk to me about winning awards and then, you know, then your book coming to life (laughs) in another format, which is TV. I mean, it's a dream come true, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And um, it's only now that I've got several TV projects on the go and, you know, it's a brutal world, TV. It's only now that I realise that just how unlikely it is for a project to be greenlit that I realised how incredibly lucky I was to, you know, have fallen in with Red Planet Pictures who um, adapted um, our house for ITV and the screenwriter Simon Ashdown who did an amazing job and the same team are now working on The Only Suspect, my new book um, that we're talking about today. So, um, So I do feel feel very lucky. And at first it was a bit surreal. I mean, I found it, um, the process of the adaptation and the filming and the casting um, and the creation of the sets and all of the location scouting, the whole thing was done in lockdown. So I was removed from the process, um, which was a shame in a way. And I very much hope that um, with, with future commissioned projects, I can, you know, I can really get more involved in seeing how the whole the whole process works in practical terms. But yeah, so I, I visited the set. I was able to do that. We were all masked up. And then obviously I saw some, um, you know, some edited scenes and then I, I was able to see the the show before it was, it was aired. Mm. It was quite surreal, I have to say. It was really surreal. Even just little things like the character names that I maybe had, you know, sort of just made up on the spot with no thought whatsoever, now being, you know, sort of used on, you know, Mm. on screen with, you know, 10 million people watching. It was just, it was just really strange. Mm. And, um, and of course, you know, having a massive star like Martin Constant playing one of your characters is a, is an extra layer of surreality um, because, um, you know, he's so associated with Line of Duty and I'd seen him in various roles and he can do different accents and it was just really strange to Mm. see such a familiar you know sort of superstar playing my character but interestingly after about 10 minutes of watching um I just forgot it was anything to do with me and I just just um you know sort of fell into the story like everyone else does yeah so the self-conscious um out-of-body experience didn't last very long and obviously I had a nice glass of champagne on the go as well (laughs) obviously (laughs) were you happy with it were you happy with the interpretation of your story? Because it is a yeah. different medium entirely, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Mm. And I learned a lot just from reading Simon's scripts and seeing how you dramatize a story for the screen mm. as opposed to mm. offer it in a, you know, in a kind of an interior sort of way that that you do in a novel. He had said to me um very early on that um all of those meta elements that, you know, actually made the book different and made the book, um, you know, I think helped win the book awards and be nominated for awards. You know, the the fact that it was based around a podcast, which was quite unusual at that time when I wrote it. And the and the fact that the recording of the podcast um sort of is part of part of the plot. 
Um, and then also the fact that um, there's a, you know, this sort of lengthy, almost suicide confession going on in there as well. Um, all of those elements were going to be going um, because, you know, they're of no interest to the to the viewer. They, they just um, get in the way of the story. So it was going to be much more linear. There are also a couple of um, tricks that you can play as an author about identity and about, you know, withholding information, which you can only do on the page. And the moment, you know, the, the actor's faces appear on the screen for the first time, you know, you, you eliminate the possibility of some of that trickery. So I knew he was going to have to do revelations in a different way. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I was absolutely thrilled. I thought it was genius, actually, the way it, the, the book was kind of dismantled and then put back together. Mm. Um, and then the mood was so similar to the book. And it was it was very true to the to the spirit of the book, I think. Mm. It was um, because you very... go from thousands of words to how long would a script be? You know, it's really contracting. It really is, yeah. Mm. And yet, you know, TV eats plot. Yes. You, know, you need you need something happening constantly. Whereas in a book, you can really go into someone's mind and it can be quite yeah. discursive and it can yeah. be, you know, it can be quite slow. You can really play with the pace a lot in a book. But on TV, it needs those beats. You know, they have mm. those, those beats. And, you know, with a, a commercial channel like ITV, you've got um, also three ad breaks. So you need a kind of mini cliffhanger before each ad break as well. Um, and so just the the, um, the structure and the pacing are, are quite different, but fascinating. I think it's really helped me with my writing my novels, actually, to sort of um, consider pace in a different way, because I'm really, you know, I'm such a... Um, I'm such an untrained writer. It's I'm very instinctive. I've never studied how you're supposed to write a novel, how you're supposed to put together a crime thriller. I literally just do what feels right. And so, you know, it's really made me look at my work and think, oh, actually, you know, I, I can see why people say it's a slow burn because with my books, there's a lot of setting up and there's a lot of unease in the first half and then things start to happen. Mm. Um, you know, it often... Boom, boom, boom. Whereas on TV, you can't, you can't, you don't have the luxury of the first half just being about guesswork. You need things yeah. happening quite, yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. So it's been a really fascinating, um, you know, sort of insight for me as a writer. Do you think it's changed you as a writer? Do you think that The Only Suspect is a different book because now you're thinking about seeing it on the screen? Um, no, I've tried not to do that. I mean, as, as mm. I say, I think I have been, it's been instructive and I think it has helped me just sort of get things going a bit earlier. But no, um, if anything, the only suspect was, as I was writing, I was thinking this would be quite hard to 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 do on TV because of the, without giving too much away for those who haven't read the book, it's got two strands and um, one's in the present day and one's in um, 1995. <clears throat> on the cusp of sort of cool Britannia in, in London. And um, and you're not sure for quite a while what the connection is between the, the two strands. Um, and, you know, I, I do, it, it did feel like a, a novelist's novel. It was, um, when I was writing it, it felt like I, I was thinking, oh, I bet um, writers will enjoy this one mm. because, um, you know, there's quite a bit of narrative trickery. It's an, it's an, it's written as a novel. It's not written for the screen mm. at all. So do you think about the reader when you're writing or do you try and put that out of your mind as well? Because I guess for you, it's going to be, um, it has to be right for you before I guess you expect 
the reader to like it? Would that be right? Yeah, I think the relationships are always there in my life between me and the reader. So I can't say that I disregard the reader when I'm writing. But with the first draft, I tend to just get it done and see if it works. And then when the editing process starts, that's when I start to think about the reader a bit more because because editors are thinking from a reader's Mm. point of view. Mm. And that's why the relationship is so important and so Mm. special. So that's when they will say, well, you know, I don't think the readers are going to remember that this was said mm. back then, or I don't think the I don't think the readers are going to get anything out of this subplot. So should we consider scrapping it? So mm. that tends to be sort of at the editing stage when I'll really think about how it might feel for someone to sit down and open this book. Mm. Um, but ultimately, um, at the idea stage and the first draft stage, I it's I just have to do what I want to do and hope that I can pull readers along with me and mm. I do now have you know a lovely core set of readers who you know oh I'm sure me. yeah um so it's but so um yeah it's new readers it's what new readers yeah. think um that I guess um is the scary thing <laughs> when we were in lockdown and I haven't asked um an author this but it's just come to mind now when we were in lockdown so of course you did you have a book out in that time yeah, I had two yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, both with a hardback and a paperback. So it was it was kind of the lost years, really. Yeah. And you didn't do any publicity, obviously, or you weren't out and about meeting readers. No, it's interesting, no, it was isn't all on it? Zoom. Yes. It would would have mm. been all on Zoom. So now that we're out about again, I wonder how much that that feedback influences what we write or what you write. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's the it's the energy, really. Actually, yes. it's the because I think that um, what I found, and you know, of course, it, I'm sure it's the same for almost everyone. That it just didn't. I, I lost sight of what you know the purpose of mm. what I was doing in mm. lockdown. On the one hand, it was you know it was therapeutic, and it, I think it saved my sanity actually to be able to create a world that I had control over. You know, at a time when we were so uncertain and had no control whatsoever over our over the real world. But I I really missed the energy of of, mm. of live events, meeting meeting readers, and also you know interacting with other authors. Mm. And it because it's only then that you kind mm. of you feel the excitement and the joy of just working in culture and the arts and literature and and stories. You just see how important it is in society when you look out at an audience and everyone's fired up and, you know, people have got great questions and, you know, we're interpreting the world. I mean, my books always have a, you know, a social commentary element there. You know, it sounds a bit grand to say they're state of the nation, but for me, they're, they're state of the nation. And this mm-hmm. is how I'm responding to 21st century life in London or in the UK. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, chimes with with my readers. And so I kind of, you know, I I just couldn't couldn't sort of draw on that energy in the same way mm. um and so I think it's not something I'd like to repeat no none of us would and I think <laughs> too I think readers interpret things in so many different ways as well like I've often been to events and thought oh I didn't think that at all and I often wonder what the author is thinking too where, where the author was going with that but you're right I think you know, being out there and being lucky enough to for authors to tour and readers, you know, to connect, there's an energy. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a really lovely relationship, mm. actually. Yes. And you do, and through social media, mm. you know, I'm 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 very attuned to the evils of social media, but I also totally appreciate the, you know, the um the, how it facilitates, you know, those sorts of quite intimate, you know, sort of exchanges between author and reader. Because you know, if you happen to both be online at the same time with five minutes to spare, you can you can have a lovely exchange. That's wonderful. Yeah. And um, and I think it, it means a lot to both parties. Um, mm. But in terms of how readers interpret the stories, I mean, I've always found that really fascinating. And at first, I, you know, my position was very well. That's not what I meant. And my, you know, because I'm the creator, I'm I'm mm. the one who judges what the book means. But I've long let go of that idea, and now I think it's the part of the magic of of, you know, what we do mm. is to see how differently your stories are in, are interpreted. And, you know, of course, you know, what you forget about when you're writing is that every single person comes to the reading process with their lives and their experiences. Mm. So they might have literally experienced what you're describing, um, or they might never have considered it in a million years and, you know, just literally take take your interpretation as as gospel so i find it just wonderful and you know um particularly in terms of character because mm. i'm constantly asked um you know why i'm writing dislikable characters or how i write dislikable characters and my answer is well i don't dislike them <laughs> it's really it's fascinating for me that people consider so many of my characters you know, incredibly ambiguous and, you know, sort of, and, and dislikable, you know, it's like, mm. oh my God, I, I, I was kind of, you know, morbidly pulled into their story, but I, but I didn't like them. Mm. And, um, and I find that hilarious because mm. I obviously love them, even, even my evil characters. Well, but, and also there's an emotion. That's what you want. You want one or the other. I mean, you want them to yeah. feel something, don't you? Um, yeah. We're out of time, Louise. Oh, okay. Um it was such a great conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. We we'll hope to see you in Australia one day. Yeah, well, actually, I am coming over to Australia on holiday probably next January. It would be great to meet up and meet some yeah. Aussie readers. Yeah, yeah, come and see us. Thank you very much for your time. The book is called The Only Suspect. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.